and uh, and lasted for a couple of weeks. I think we had a snowstorm in between there uh, with a little ice and heavy weather, and then we had sickness. So uh, that's always a good sign. That's always encouraging to me, believe it or not, because that means that uh, whatever we're preaching, Satan doesn't want us preaching. So praise God for that. I'm encouraged. Every time we face adversity, when people come to me for counseling and say, I don't know, I feel like this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. Every time I turn around, something else happens. I, and I always look at them and go, praise the Lord. They always look at me like I have two heads. Because that means that God is working in you and through you and Satan doesn't like it. So when that happens, praise God. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Book of Hebrews, chapter 4. We're actually looking at the very last verse of this chapter which has been chock full of theology. That's why we slowed down a little bit here, uh, which is saying a lot for me because we don't cover a lot of verses anyway. But when we, when you see me slow down and do one verse at a time like that, that means it's chock full and I don't want us to miss it because it's so important to our walks. It's so important that we understand and grasp these truths. So hopefully you found your way now to Hebrews chapter 4. And we're just going to be looking at one verse, but we're going to recap 14 through 16 rather quickly, uh, 14 and 15 quickly, so we can get to 16, which is really the capstone of this entire passage. I want you to know there are really two main thoughts in verses 14 to 16. Hopefully you remember those from last week. The first one is, let us hold fast our confession. And then the second one is in verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and everything in between, all the theology packed in between those two statements uh, is uh, what we're going to cover this morning. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless our time together in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the immense privilege that I have to open up your wonderful truth. I pray, Lord, that we can cling to your promise in Isaiah 55, 11, that your word never goes out and returns to you void. It always accomplishes exactly what you intended. And, Lord, there are hearts that are hurting here this morning. There are hearts who need to hear this message. And you've brought them here today, Lord, to hear your truth. Now I pray, Lord, that they would have open hearts and open minds to your truth, that they might be comforted by your word, that they may be healed spiritually if they're wounded, if they're suffering, that they might find a source of great comfort in you, the only one who can truly bring about that comfort. So be with us now, Lord, as we finish off this chapter, and may you be glorified in it all. Through Jesus' name we pray, amen. So pick it up here, if you will, in verse 14, if you remember, Verse 14 is right after 13. See how sharp I am right there? Verse 14 follows verse 13. But remember in verse 13 that uh, it had said, there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's kind of a scary verse, isn't it? Because remember when we looked at that, it says the Lord sees it all. The Lord knows it all. The Lord lays us bare, remember, and that's an image of being stretched out with your neck exposed, like in wrestling where you're just completely helpless. You're just kind of pinned out there with your neck exposed. That's the idea of what the Word of God does, piercing our very souls, right? Digging deep there, 
breaking the hardness around our hearts. Right after that verse, we get verse 14, which is, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and then there's our first admonition, let us hold fast our confession. So now after just leaving that sobering thought that God knows every thought, every intention of our heart, that all are laid bare before him in verse 13, we now get this in verse 14. What's the point that the author of Hebrews is making here? He's letting us know that even though we are laid bare by the word of God before him, that we're totally vulnerable and transparent to God, that we have someone who can intercede for us on our behalf. And immediately, remember to who the audience is here in Hebrews, to these professing Christians who are tempted to fall back to Judaism, this would have brought back the thought of the role of the priest in the Old Covenant, the priest under the law. Because under the priest under the law really had two functions, remember? The first was to mediate between uh, God and man for man's sin, and he did that through the sacrificial system. He was the one who administered all the sacrifices unto the Lord. And then he was also to mediate, uh, he's also to intercede for man before God. He was to plead man's case, if you will, before God and seek his mercy. But the intercession for man before God is really the function of not the priest, but whom? The high priest. That was really the high priest's role. And so that's really who the author of Hebrews has in mind here. And the author wants to show that instead of fear, that they should take great comfort in the one that intercedes for them as a high priest because he's so far superior to any earthly high priest. Now, what are the ways that Jesus, as the great high priest, is superior to uh, the Levitical high priest? Well, verse 14a then tells us the first thing, the reason that Christ is superior as our great high priest is because he passed through the heavens. What does that mean? Well, you recall... No priest, not even a high priest, could ever enter into the presence of God on their own terms. Nobody could stroll up to God and say, Lord, I've got a problem here. I want you to know what's happening here. They wouldn't even think about it. No priest, not even a high priest, could enter into the presence of God under their own terms. And that becomes important later in chapter 5 as we start unpacking that. Nor could they ever come into the very presence of God if their own sin was not atoned for. So first thing they had to do was make sure that their sin was atoned for. Then they could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year and atone for the sins of all of Israel. So only as in, and we saw that, remember, on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, which really describes that whole process. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? And the mercy seat in between the two cherubim. And uh, that's where he would go into and atone for all the sins of Israel. And remember, we looked at this in, in the book of Leviticus. If the high priest did not follow the instructions of the Lord somewhat close? No, exactly. Any deviation, 
anything, anytime the high priest would presume upon himself to enter into the presence of God in any way other than God had specified, what was the punishment? Death. Instantly. Instantly. And so he would uh, then he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in the very presence of God. But even before doing that, he had to atone for his own sins first, right? He couldn't just go in and say, well, I've got some sins, but God will deal with them later. Now let me go into the presence of God and atone for the sins of the people. No. First, he had to atone for his own sins. Then he could go into the presence of God, but only once a year. Now to get into the Holy of Holies, to perform this sacred task every year, the high priest had to go through how many partitions to get to him? Everybody remember? Three, right? Three. And he had to go to the out, had to go through the outer court, and then he would get into the holy place. And then finally there was a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, right, is where the Ark of the Covenant, right, where the mercy seat is at. Three different partitions were necessary to pass through before coming into the presence of the triune God. And not only that, he had to do it every year on the Day of Atonement, every single year. But Jesus is not another high priest, is he? He's not just another high priest. He's our great high priest. Because rather than entering into the Holy of the Holies in the temple like an earthly priest, he actually passed through the heavens in his ascension to the very presence of God. In fact, the father said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you in Psalm 110. No earthly priest would ever dare to even think about sitting in the Holy of Holies. There were no seats. There were no chairs for you to kick back and relax, right? You had two bells put at the bottom of their robe to make sure they were still alive when they went in there, that their own sin was atoned for, and that they didn't mess up in any way. And so they were probably very relieved when the high priest would come out because, A, it meant that the high priest was alive, and, B, it meant that their sacrifice was atoned for, right? That their sins were atoned for. But Jesus sits at the right hand of God's throne. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. We'll get there at some point, I promise, Lord willing. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can what? Never take away sins. Verse 12, but he, having offered how many sacrifices? One sacrifice for sins for what? All time sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And he remains there today. He is at God's right hand, making intercession for us. He's actually taking our prayers and then helping to formulate those in a way that's pleasing to the Father. As he intercedes on our behalf. So Jesus, our great high priest, was unlike any mere mortal priest. And then secondly, remember his name. You have his name, Jesus, in Hebrew, Yeshua, right? Yeshua, which means what? God saves, right? Or God save us. And so the name Jesus speaks of his humanity. If Jesus was not fully human, then what? He could never have died, right? Because God is eternal. 
So he had to be human so he could die for our sins. But then his other title, Son of God, speaks to his deity. So he's fully God, fully man. He needed to be God because he needs to be able to live a sinless life and become the perfect sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God for our sins against us. That's why he is the only one called the great high priest in all of Scripture. There are high priests, but he is the only great high priest. And there's simply no contest between the Arianic priests, the priesthood of Aaron in, in the Levitical system, and our great high priest. And that's why it's so important for these professing Christians in Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, to hold fast. Hold fast to your confession. Remember who is your great high priest. Remember where he is. Remember what he did to get there. Remember the sacrifice that he made in his own blood to be able to pass through the heavens, to be seated now at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for you. Remember what he's done. Don't go back to the old priesthood, which was just a picture, a shadow of what Christ would bring. But cling to your confession in Christ. But the author of Hebrews isn't done yet. There's some other aspects of this great high priesthood that he wants to bring to these professing believers' attention. Look at verse 15 back in Hebrews 4 now. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So now the author of Hebrews has just finished telling us in verse 14 how superior Jesus is as our great high priest than any of the other priests. But now he insists that because Jesus is so, so, so far superior to any earthly priest, that he can actually sympathize with us. And so that begs the question, how is it even possible that Jesus could ever really understand, I mean truly understand, the struggles that I have been and that I'm dealing with? Because he was sinless. He doesn't know what it's like to sin. How can that be? And two reasons are given in verse 15. The first reason is, is that Jesus sympathizes with what? Our weaknesses. Not his weaknesses, but our weaknesses. And because Jesus is fully man, he can identify with the physical limitations of our human bodies. In other words, Jesus knows what it's like to be what? He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to feel pain. He knows what it's like to suffer, excruciatingly suffer. He knows what it's like to be hated for simply speaking the truth of God. He knows what it's like to see a good friend pass away. He knows what it's like to have those you love betray you. He's well aware of the limitations of our humanity because he's fully man. He's 100% man. And because of the limitations of his human body, he was subjected to temptation in those areas. If you remember in his temptation in the wilderness, it was at he, when he was at his what? Physically weakest state in the desert. 40 days without food. That's when Satan jumped in trying to entice him, trying to break him down. But the lone difference between Jesus' temptations and ours is that he faced those temptations 
and yet he never sinned, unlike us. Unlike us. See, Jesus was never tempted by indwelling sin as we are. He does not have an inherent sin nature like you and I do. Temptation had to come to Jesus from the outside, not from the inside. But that being said, since Jesus did not have a sin nature, does that mean that he was not truly tempted as we are? Well, the scriptures are pretty clear on this, actually very clear on this, that Jesus was tempted and yet, what, without sin. However, James chapter 1 also tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil. So how is it? How is it then could he really be tempted, much less commit a sin? And the answer is that Jesus met every temptation to sin, not by his divine power, but by what? By his humanity, by his human nature. And he relied simply on the power of the Father and the Holy Spirit to get him through those temptations. Incidentally, that's the same way that you and I get through, is by the strength of Christ, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not able to sin, but that doesn't diminish his capacity to truly sympathize with our weaknesses. I would argue the temptations that Jesus faced were broader and even more difficult because he was fully God and fully man. And he experienced them in a far greater magnitude than you and I ever will, yet without sin. So that brings us then to verse 16. Where do we go to him then? If he is so far superior than anything that they had before, if he's the, if he's, if he's a fully man and fully God, and he can can uh, knows what it's like to be tempted in all these things, to know what it's like to suffer, to know what it's like, and yet to do it without sin. Where then do we find him? How do we get in touch with him? How can we seek his face when our time in our time of need? Verse sixteen tells us that. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. First, let me tell you that that throne of grace is an oxymoron, right? It's like jumbo shrimp. I mean, they would have been thinking in their minds, what a strange combination of two words, throne of grace. Because in the ancient world in which they lived, the throne was a place of judgment, Right? It was not a place where you would go and find mercy other than where the high priest would go. So in their mind, you didn't just stroll in and go see the king because you had a problem with your taxes or because your neighbor was infringing on your land. Uh, not at all. If you were to approach the throne of an earthly king before he lifted his scepter, you would die on the spot. You had to have approval to even approach an earthly king. No lengthy trial, no plea bargaining, just your execution. End of story. Bring in the next complaint. I'm sure there weren't many after that. So to hear the author of Hebrews call it a throne of grace would have definitely caught their attention as something unusual, but it also would have brought to mind the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies that the high priest would come before. The mercy seat over which the Shekinah glory of God hovered, symbolizing his presence there. 
And in this regard, the mercy seat was considered the earthly throne of God. It is this throne that the author of Hebrews is now telling them to approach. But that could not have been any more opposite to how Israel was instructed to approach God under the old covenant, right? I just told you the high priest could only do it once a year, only in a specified way, only in a specified time. But now the author of Hebrews is saying, come with confidence before the throne of grace. And you have to remember that how they would have been thinking and what they would have been thinking when they heard this, because that is completely foreign to what they have been taught under the old covenant. Let's look at a couple of those passages, which is so keep your place in Hebrews chapter four and go all the way back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 19. Genesis, Exodus, second book of your Bible. Now, this is a little lengthy, but I want you to, I want you to see and get a sense of what is happening here. Look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or even touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain, what? Shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through whether beast or man, not even the beast could come upon the mountain in which God's presence was going to come. Why not? Because it was designated holy by the presence of God. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, consecrated the people. They washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do, don't, uh, do not go near a woman. Why not? They would have been ceremonially unclean again. They would have had to go through this whole process again. So it came about on the third day, when it was the morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp did what? They trembled in fear. Have you ever been in a storm where you have those shelf clouds where it just looks like, it looks like it's only about 10 foot above your head, and it's thick, and it's ominous, and it's black, and there's lightning flashing through it? Have you ever been close to one of those? It's a bit unsettling, isn't it? But imagine uh, the voice of God is thundering through this as well. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people, 
so that they do not break through to the Lord to do what? To gaze. Don't even look. Don't even look. Or what? They will perish. Also, let the priest who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Right? You don't just casually stroll into the presence of a holy God. There's a very specific way. Now turn to Numbers chapter 4. So go over a couple books to your right. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 4, verse 5. And Moses is describing the, the duties of the Kohathites, which were, and their duty was to move the ark. Right? They were to move the ark. So look at verse 5. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his son shall go in. They shall take down the veil of the screen, cover the ark of the testimony with it. They shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it. Uh, do you think any other type of skin would have been okay to lay upon that? No. No. And then they shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue. How about red? I don't really like blue. Maybe, maybe something in a green family would be okay. And shall insert its poles over the table of the bread of presence. They shall also spread a cloth of blue, so on and so forth. Verse 8, they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet, cover the same with a covering of porpoise skin. Then they shall insert its poles. Then they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand for the light. On and on and on. Look at verse 15. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so they will not touch the holy objects and do what? And die. Don't look, don't touch, don't come into the presence. Don't. So you imagine here how this sounds to a group of people who would have grown up listening to this. And the author of Hebrews says, now come draw near with confidence. How different that would have sounded. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6 as we work our way back here. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. 2 Samuel 6, verse 1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and he arose and went with all the people who were with him. Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, who was on the hill, and Uzzah, Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down for what? His irreverence. Now, 
Look at what happened when even gazing at the holy objects, or worse yet, reaching out your hand and touching a holy object of the Lord's. Uh, approaching God in any other way than which he has specified all throughout Scripture up until this point meant what? Certain death on the spot. So under the old covenant, people of God were told to keep their distance. But now under the new covenant, they're told to do what? Draw near. Why? What's the difference? Well, the author of Hebrews actually answers that question and several others in this verse. So let's look at them quickly. Number one, why should we draw near to the throne of grace? Well, that was answered for us back in verse 15. We should draw near because we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows us. He knows what it's like to be tempted by sin. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed, to be scorned, to be mocked, to be despised for your faith. He knows the full range of that temptation as well, beyond the limits of what you and I would ever been tempted because we would give in at some point in time, but yet he never did. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He felt the full effects of temptation, but it never wavered. That's something you and I have never experienced. Because all of us have given in at some point in our life to temptation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In some capacity, we've all yielded to the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life resulting in sin. Every single one of us here. But he never did, which is why we should draw near to him. For he's the only one who experienced temptation that never ended. And yet without sin. Listen, my friends, we don't come to God because we're rocking it through life. And we just need a little counsel to get through the rough spots. We come to him before the throne of grace because we're weak. Jesus didn't say, without me, you can get along pretty well most of the time, but call me if you need me. Did he? What's he saying in John 15, 5? Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So why should we draw near? We draw near because we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Number two, when should we draw near? Well, the very end of verse 16 tells us we should draw near to him when we need help. In our time of need. When is that? You're kidding, right? That's pretty much all the time. But that's not when we typically draw near, is it? You see, our tendency is to draw near to the throne of grace only, thing, only when things have spun out of control. Only when we've tried to fix them and only made a bigger mess out of it. Only when we're not able to fix it ourselves, right? We adopt this attitude like, I'll call you if I need you, Jesus. But so far today, things are going pretty good. Or break glass in case of emergency mentality in our prayer life. I don't have time today. I'm a little busy today. But if things go haywire, isn't it amazing how much time we have for prayer? All the reasons we thought we didn't have time for prayer, just let your life spin out of control. It's amazing how much time we have then to cry out to him. Let me ask you this. Is there ever a day when you are not tempted to sin? 
Is there ever a day when Satan ceases to attack you with his fiery darts, attempts to cause you to stumble in your walk? No. He doesn't take a day off. He doesn't have vacation time. It's constantly. What does 1 Peter 5, 8 say? Be sober. Be alert. Your adversary. Whose adversary? Your adversary. My adversary. Our adversary. The devil prowls around like what? A roaring lion seeking to do what? Devour someone. Not only that, it is only, not only do we have to know, not only do we know we're constantly having adversaries trying to make us stumble, but just think about the way God's grace is shut over your life right now. You have a roof over your head? You have food on your table? You got clothes on your back? Incidentally, the last breath I just took to say that phrase is only by the grace of God and yours as well. Yes, I need him all the time, and so do you. So why should we draw near? We should draw near because we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because we're weak and he's not. When is that? When should we do it? All the time. Pastor Ben was talking about that earlier today, right? We should be praying without ceasing, because we are needy people all the time. Number three, how should we draw near to the throne of grace? How does it say? With confidence. With confidence. Not confidence in us, but confidence in him, in Jesus, our great high priest. Flip back a couple books. Keep your thumb in Hebrews there. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. Ephesians 3, verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purposes which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12. In whom we have what? Boldness and confident access through faith in him. It is through his shed blood that the veil was torn from top to bottom. It is through his atoning work on the cross that we are now reconciled to God through faith. We have real fellowship with God, not a picture of fellowship with God like the old priests offered us, but we have real fellowship with God. That word confidence also not only means assurance, it also means freedom in honesty. It means frankness. What do I mean by that? That means that we can come to him in the full assurance that he hears us, but also we can be completely honest with him at all times. After all, Pastor Ben touched on this again this morning in Sunday school. It's not like you can hide something from an all-knowing God who knows everything, who even knows your thoughts and intentions of your heart. But there's an immensely practical side to this as well. What do I mean by that? I mean that we're not always honest with God when we pray to him, are we? Even when, even though we have the freedom with him to be completely honest and completely straightforward. What do I mean by that? My friends, both believers here today and unbelievers know things about ourselves that we simply don't want those who love us to know about. Why? 
because it's embarrassing. It could be humiliating. We don't want anyone to know about those things we've kept hidden. Oh, yeah, we're really open on certain things, aren't we, with each other? I'm really struggling with stress. I'm really struggling with being a perfectionist. I'm really struggling with control issues, and we all shake our heads. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. But you're probably not going to hear about somebody's struggles with pornography or purity or immorality or substance abuse until the issue becomes so destructive that it's moved out of control and can no longer be hidden in their lives. I think we can all identify, at least in some capacity, with some struggle in our lives that we don't feel comfortable sharing with one another. And as much as I would counsel you to seek biblical counseling and to let the body of Christ love one another and come alongside you, and encourage you from the Word of God. I also understand that this may be something you've been struggling with for a long time, and you're not quite there yet. But not being completely honest and open with each other is far different than not being totally honest and open with God. Not only do you know you now have the freedom to do that, but you're missing the only true resource you have to actually comfort you in the midst of this trial. Which is the answer to our final question we have in our text this morning. What can we expect then when we draw near to the throne of grace? What does our text tell us? We're going to find mercy. We're going to receive mercy and we're going to find grace. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is not getting what we actually deserve. And grace is getting what we don't actually deserve. As a believer, when I'm in sin and I draw near to his throne of grace in confidence, confidence in who he is and what he's done for me, the confidence to speak openly and honestly about all I'm struggling with him, I don't receive his judgment. I receive his mercy. What I deserve is God's wrath for my sin. What I receive is God's mercy for my sin. But as a believer, I not only receive mercy, I also receive grace. Instead of condemnation, I receive his grace through faith. So when I'm struggling in my sin, when I'm struggling in my temptations, no matter what they are, Draw near to the only one who can truly help you. Draw near to the one and receive mercy, not condemnation. Draw near to the one and find grace instead of judgment. Draw near to the one who created you, who formed you in your mother's womb and has placed his spirit within you. Draw near to the one who truly understands your struggle, who's dealt with your temptation, your suffering, enduring far more than you ever have or ever will, and yet without sin. So when you're struggling as a parent, and you don't want to share because you don't want people to think that you're going to be a bad parent, or when you're struggling as a husband, but you don't want to share it because you don't want people to think you're a bad husband or a bad wife or a rebellious teen or an older person, God says, draw near. Draw near. Draw near to your great high priest who's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. Be open, be honest, and lay it all at his feet. 
He knows what you're going through, and he can truly help you in your time of need. Now, I want to remind you that just because we ask does not mean he's obligated to respond immediately to our solution for the issue. Sometimes he may choose to allow that pain to stay around a little longer than you would like. But trust that there is good that will come from it. He may not remove the thorn from your flesh, as he told Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that the Lord does not often, wonderfully, surprisingly, magnificently, even immediately come to the rescue of his children in times of trouble and lift them up and provide for all their wants and grant them the desires of their heart and annihilate their sorrows. He does, and he's done so more often than I can even count in my own life and yours. But understand this as well, that even in those providentially hard places, even when God allows us to walk through a particularly dark valley, there is still comfort to be found. Take comfort in your confidence that he hears you. Take comfort in your confidence that he knows what it's like to deal with your struggle. Take comfort in your confidence that he'll respond in his perfect timing and in his perfect way. Beloved, because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, who's been tempted as we are, yet without sin, because of those things, we must hold fast to our confession of faith and not drift away. We should do the opposite. We should, instead of drifting away, we should draw near. Draw near with confidence to the throne of God, fully expecting that we will receive mercy and find grace to help in countless ways to our need. To those professing Christians in this little church in Hebrews, he's demonstrating to them that the great high priest that they have in Jesus is far superior than anything their priest could have done for them. They should not be like the seed that's thrown on the rocky soil who hears the good news of the gospel, but immediately receives it with joy and yet has no firm root in himself, is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises from the word, immediately abandons it. They should instead draw near with confidence in their confession of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for them through his atoning work on the cross. And they should hold fast cling unwaveringly to their faith in Christ. And for those in this little church who'd already placed their faith in Jesus, but were struggling with the temptation and their own weaknesses, the author of Hebrews is speaking to them too. He's saying, you too need to draw near with confidence to this throne of grace. You too need to receive mercy and find grace and help in your time of need. Be open. Be honest. Seek the comfort you so desperately need in your time of need. When is that time as believers that we should be doing that? All the time. All the time. Beloved, those two groups, those who have made a profession of Christ but never truly surrendered, they need to draw near to the throne of grace and they need to surrender their life to Christ. They need to quit trying to 
power through this life in their own will and with their own limited thinking and think that they're going to just be rocking it through life and that they'll call Jesus someday if they really need him. Because the truth of the matter is, is that we're all weak. We're all struggling. We all have things that we're dealing with, every single one of us. And we need him. And the same holds true to those of us who have already surrendered our life to Christ, but think that we don't need him every day. We too need him every day. We need him all the time. So the question is, which one are you? Which group are you in here today? Are you the group that would call yourself a Christian, but yet never have truly surrendered your life to Christ? If that's you and the Lord is working on your heart, I pray you would, today would be the day that you would surrender. You wouldn't let another moment pass by and presume upon the grace of God. That the last breath you take is just one of millions more you're going to take. Because that simply could not be true. You don't know, but he does. And if you're here today and you've already made a decision for Christ, but you've wandered away and tried to fix things in your own way, and instead of drawing near to him, you've pushed him aside and said, you know, I got this, Lord. I'll call you if things get really bad. I would encourage you today to draw near as well and be encouraged by the only one who can ever bring you true comfort in your time of need. And that's Jesus Christ, our great high priest, through the ministry of his spirit and his word. I'm going to ask the elders if they would come forward here our front row. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I pray that today you would just meet with them, either during the service or after the service, and help them to answer any question you may have. I guarantee you, it would be the most important decision you ever make in this life, and you'll never regret it. Secondly, if you're here today, and you know without a doubt that you are a follower of Christ, that you are a child of God. But you've been trying to rocket through this life without Jesus. You've been trying to set him aside. You've been trying to do things on your own, and you've not cried out to him. You've not drawn near to him. I pray you would perhaps come and pray with the elders as well. Not for salvation, but just to have a fellow believer come alongside you and pray and encourage you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Then we're going to close with hymn 704, God Will Make a Way. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray if there's any in our midst today that don't know you, that today would be the day. That they would just surrender it all and quit fighting. Quit trying to do it on their own. Quit trying to do it without their only true source of comfort. I pray today, Lord, would be that day. And for those, Lord, who do know you, but have pushed you aside and tried to handle things on their own, those who are in physical pain, those who are in emotional pain, those who are in spiritual pain, I pray, Lord, they would come alongside and that we could, as a body of Christ, come alongside them and help carry their burdens and lift them up in prayer here today. That's our heart's desire, Lord. That's what your word tells us to do. And we know where that one true source of comfort is found. It's found in you and your word. Be with us now, Lord.
finish this message in the hearts and minds of all who are here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, shall we?